Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode six of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, a podcast about how to get creativity to pay the bills, how to monetize art, and how to turn doing what you love into a bunch of Benjamins. I hope you're all very well indeed. Last week, I announced the re-release of my album, Acoustic Anthems, and you guys have blown me away with the response. They've been flying off the shelves and there is less than 10 copies left. So if you'd like one of the very few remaining copies, please head over to jessiesmithuk.com before it's too late. My guest on the pod today is a phenomenal musician, composer and songwriter best known for being a founder member and keyboard player for Level 42. Level 42 are one of the most successful jazz funk outfits of all time, having released 11 studio albums to date and sold over 30 million units worldwide. He's a real gent and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, so please welcome to the pod the brilliant Mike Linder. coping up in scotland in the lockdown yeah well you know it's uh uh if there was ever a, a beautiful place to get locked down in it it's here um for sure uh where whereabouts are you i'm on the west coast um oh wow and uh kind of uh off well off the beaten track mm. um and you know not i'm although i'm near quite a lot of kind of historical sites uh, being in the sort of kingdom of Dalriada, uh, the wow. former kingdom of Dalriada, which is where the first Scots or Scotties came over from Northern Ireland years mm. ago and created a kingdom here. Um, you know, this place has been inhabited for, you know, over 5,000 years. And uh, when I go for walks, you can see, you know, remnants of, um, well, either, you know, Dunad, as it were, which is where the first scottish kings were crowned and there's a, a special rock which has a place for a cup holder and a place for a foot um for whoever it was that's being crowned to put their foot into and it's on it's on this um on this sort of flat ground where you can see for miles and uh, it was fortified and apparently the sea or the river used to come right up to it so it was um and they used to trade and apparently they traded with you know vikings and and probably with the picts and uh um you know and there's a lot of history of course we don't know and that's always being uncovered um even in these times but yes so it's it's a very historical area but um it's not kind of on the tourist map and uh, i'm on a peninsula which leads to a dead end so people coming here are coming here they're not sort of on their way to you know, to, to Glasgow or to Fort William or to the Trossachs or to Stirling Castle or to any of those places. Yeah, um, no one's popping in for a cuppa. They have to be, they have to be coming. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. I mean, obviously my neighbours under normal circumstances, um, uh, but I look out over a sea loch, which is, uh, 
which is gorgeous. And, you know, when I go for my walk or my daily exercise, you know, I'm in beautiful countryside. So that's, uh, you know, good on many levels. Obviously, it's it's good on a therapeutic level. You know, it's great being in nature, uh, but it's also good in terms of the muse and sort of thinking about stuff and, um, you know, getting ideas. I mean, you know, who knows where ideas come from and what triggers them, but uh, certainly it helps to be here. And, I, you know, I'm lucky because a lot of people are, are, you know, in much more restricted circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to say, we're, obviously, we've started recording. I'm here with Mike Lindup. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, first of all. Mm. Um, you're the you're the fourth person I'm recording, and and um, I'm really nervous about this, but I think I think it's it's going to be brilliant actually, and to to learn from people like yourself and the stories um, that you have over your career so far. And um, if 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 we may, I'd like to go back to the beginning and talk about sort of your your musical beginnings. So you come from quite a quite an amazing family in terms of the arts, don't you? I was I was doing my research last night and your mm. mother was an, an actress and your father was a film composer. So can, can you just tell me about your upbringing in, and being in such a creative household? Well, yeah, my mother was... Um, uh, well, she came to Scotland, actually, during the war. She volunteered um, when the, the call-up went round, all of the, you know colonies and places like that and she was in British Honduras at the time which is now Belize and uh and she was 18 and uh the war had been on for a couple of years and they were calling for people to volunteer and help you know fight the cause so she came to the UK and wanted to be stationed in Scotland because there's quite a Scottish collection with Belize some of the early colonizers there were Scottish and um for whatever reason um, she spent her war years mainly in Scotland and then went back home and taught uh, as a head teacher in, in a school right in the bush for a couple of years and then came back to the UK in 51 and has been here ever since. And she studied at LSE for a year and then she stopped because she'd started getting singing gigs at folk clubs because she, she, you know, she's got a beautiful voice. And mm. folk clubs, um, you know, in those days, late 50s, early 60s, were very much kind of the open mic uh, uh, places that we sort of know of more now where right. people from all over the world uh, and with all different experiences but with that sort of commonality of of loving music and maybe you know my I mean mum grew up knowing a lot of British folk songs because it was a British colony and uh you know she grew up listening to American radio and jazz on that but uh you know and uh you know folk included semi-religious songs and protest songs and and bawdy songs rude songs and uh you know, uh, and so she found herself kind of at home there and she made a name for herself and then got involved with um, a programme on the radio called Hootenanny, um, which came from Scotland where different folk singers would gather together and then a TV programme called Hallelujah, which was on every Sunday. Uh, and uh, she was partnered with other singers such and songwriters such as Sidney Carter, Martin Carthy, Isla Cameron and... Um, they they was you know very sort of big names in the day and uh, this was like national television so she was singing and then doing gigs at the Edinburgh Festival which is how I got my love of Scotland because we'd mm. spend summer holidays up traveling around Scotland visiting friends and connections with mum and then end up in Edinburgh for the week of her sort of singing engagement and so at home you know the sitting room had a piano and guitars and 
drums and a tape recorder and she used to rehearse there you know with with accompanists because she couldn't really play she could strum a bit but she couldn't really play guitar so she often had an accompanist who was sure. a proficient guitar player and uh and she'd sing around the house and and then my dad was a composer arranger and he came out of the jazz scene and um you know he got a name for himself as a, as a jazz arranger and orchestrator and then got in uh worked for a long time with john dankworth um and cleo lane and worked with john as his sort of co-arranger for many years and then was doing tv themes and um sort of incidental music and library music um perhaps, he, perhaps his most famous claim to fame was that he did the arrangements for the muppet show wow so, so whenever the, <laughs> so that was the jack parnell orchestra was the band but, but whenever there was a guest artist you know whoever came on and, and they would do a number with the Muppets sort of halfway through the show. They do their sort of singing thing with mm. Kermit and Miss Piggy. So my dad would do the arrangements for that. And, um, and he'd do incidental music for things like the Persuaders and so on. Not the theme tune, but, um, you know, the music you hear as you're watching the programme. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, and he, you know, unfortunately my parents split up when I was quite young, but, my, obviously my dad kept on working and uh, I kept seeing him and my mum was working then she kind of got more into the acting and um, played a nurse on a series called Angels and was in a, a program called Crown Court and, and did plays and did stage plays and I sometimes you know travel with her to do that so it, you know and there was a record player and a big record collection in the sitting room and that's where I used to go and hang that was my you know my, my playroom my chill room my escape room uh and my you know creative room so i started uh, making up things or trying to figure out what i heard on the radio on the piano and you know that's kind of where it all started so it's just inevitable really you were just surrounded by by the music and and everything yeah i guess so i mean you know of course i wasn't thinking about anything like you know a career i, I went to school locally um you know primary school and middle school and one year at high school and then I got into uh, audition for a music school called Cheatham's in Manchester when I was 14. Hmm. And so uh, I was accepted there and, and was at that school for four years, which was a specialist. You know, all, all the people there were musicians or training in music. So hmm. we had an academic timetable, but the rest of the time we'd be doing private, you know, private study lessons or orchestral rehearsals or choir, um, you know, singing gigs in cathedrals and so on and uh and then was that from a boarding there, school yes it was it was it's in manchester so right. uh, i was living in london so uh you know in order to attend i had to become a boarder so i became right. a boarder at the age of 14 and uh at first it's quite I hate... a quite a task isn't it to to be away from your your folks when you're that age for four years you know it's a long time isn't it it was and uh you know it took took me a while to get used to it you know uh, i hated manchester when i first got there i thought it was a you know, uh, the, the the school is in the middle of the city and understandably uh, it was restricted. So you couldn't just go out and do what you want. You know, you had to get permission and you had to go with someone else and then you had to sign back in and, you know, all kind of health and safety stuff, if you like. This was like 1973, mm. 74. Um, but uh, when I got there, you know, I looked around at the skyline and thought, this is just like London, but not as good. And I was lonely <laughs> and I was fed up and... Um, you should have uh, started going to Old Trafford, Mike. You would have been much more invigorated. Well, you know uh, <laughs> what. Eventually, 
you know, I, I, I soon realised that actually um, Manchester had a lot going for it. And uh, mm-hmm. one was the friendliness of the people, which was in stark contrast to London, even though I'd lived in London all my life. Well, I'm a girl up in Wimbledon. Um, I noticed how, you know, everyone would say, you know, you're right, love. And they they, they just seem really friendly. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, and then um, we'd have school trips and we'd go out to uh the lake district or the peak district you know and uh in in groups you know looking at the geology and geography and and just going for walks and then we go up to the loon valley up in lancashire which is a beautiful spot um and uh you know we go to heaton park which was a big park on the outskirts uh, of manchester and uh i realized that there you know there was a lot you know going for it outside and and you know, so when I went back after I'd left school, you know, I always get a tingle when I go and get into Manchester. You know, it means a mm. lot to me. And then that area did did so. And, and of course, you know, from a musical point of view, it was fantastic training there. And Absolutely. Uh, led me on to going to, you know, auditioning and getting into the Guildhall School of Music back in London uh, afterwards for another three years of study, which is where I met eventually the other guys from Level 42. Yeah, right. Was it Phil, was it Phil that you were at? a guild hall with at the time yeah well i was full-time there and he was he was having part-time lessons with uh my percussion teacher because by then i'd um i'd been encouraged at cheetahs to take up percussion as a study because i'd gone there as a pianist and clarinetist and composition mm. and uh i dropped the clarinet while i was there i wasn't enjoying that but uh, i took up percussion at the behest of the then music director jerry littlewood um, who seemed to think I'd be good at it. And actually, it was great. I really enjoyed playing percussion. And, uh, of course, what that meant was that I was playing in the orchestra suddenly, whereas as a mm. piano player, you don't really get a chance to do that, which sure. was great. I really enjoyed playing in orchestras and, and, you know, chamber orchestras and, you know, everything from Bach to the most sort of you know, contemporary 20th century music and big concerts at the Free Trade Hall, doing the Planet Suite and... Belshazzar's Feast and all kinds of, you know, uh, fantastic pieces. So when I auditioned for for Guildhall and the other colleges, uh, I auditioned as a first study percussionist, which meant my odds were much, uh, I think, shorter is the right word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because, you know, there's no way I was going to get in as a pianist. There were far too many much more dedicated concert pianists around. Was it really competitive, was it, to to get in? Well, uh, you know, there were only so many places. I mean, there, there were there were four colleges, you know, really offering places. Royal College, the Academy, Trinity and Guildhall. Mm. Um, I auditioned for the Royal College, the Academy and Guildhall because uh, I, I didn't know, you know, which one would accept me or... But I, I figured, you know, if I go for those three, I, I stood a good chance. And actually, um, I, only, I got accepted into the Guildhall and it turned out to be a blessing because at the time... The Guildhall was the only college that was really in, uh, kind of encouraging, even if it was in a semi sense, any other music than classical. So right. they had they had the drama department, and of course there were like theatrical productions that needed music. There were drama students who fancied themselves as singers that wanted to sort of you know get backing. And there was a guy there called Dave Watts who used to run something called a pop workshop where people could drop in and just 
try out stuff. We, uh, we formed some of us from that formed a, a dodgy cover band called Jawbone. Um, <laughs> it's a good where, name. <laughs> where I, I thought it was a terrible name, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we had a, a couple of regular singers and you know a small brass section, and I was playing drums in it, and uh, uh, and, and you know, we did a few outside gigs, probably surreptitiously. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, where I had um, friends from Cheatham's who went to the Royal College, uh, you know, there, there was a girl there, Joe Wells, who you know said, "Can I start a big band?" And she was told in no uncertain terms that that wasn't going to be acceptable right. at all. And uh, in fact, Phil, who I'd met at the Guildhall, he then went to the academy and was studying there, and. Uh, he got told off for putting together a drum kit in the percussion room with all of the bits and pieces. And, wow. and uh, you know, so it was, it was really, you know, re- it was really frowned on. And this is like the late 70s. We're talking, you know, 77, 78. Whereas at Guildhall, it was, it was much more encouraging and it was a much freer atmosphere. So I'm, I'm glad I ended up there. Yeah, it sounds like they're a bit more liberal. <laughs> yeah. So, OK, so you meet Phil and then, of course he eventually introduces you to mark is that right and that's where level 42 begins so what were those early days like how did you all how how did you get together for the first time and rehearse and all that stuff well uh we uh our first rehearsals were in fact jam sessions and um by the time you know after i'd met mark and then boone um i think i met mark actually i met mark first Phil introduced me. Uh, we met at a Golden Egg Cafe in Oxford Street, and I just bought some Billy Cobham drumsticks, and right. uh, and we were all talking about drummers because Mark was a drummer before he became a bass player, and That's uh, right, yeah. um, so you know, and we go around to to Phil's flat that he was sharing with Mark and put on records and who's the best drummer and listen to you know jazz fusion and funk and. Uh, and and Mark went off on a couple of uh, uh, attempts to sort of, you know, make his name in a group, one one in Austria, one in Italy, and, and neither of those worked out. And eventually we kind of said, well, let's try something ourselves. And so I booked the percussion room at Guildhall as a rehearsal space, and Monday evenings uh, we'd come in. And, in fact, the first guitarist on the scene was uh, Dominic Miller, who's mm. now now Sting's guitarist, but he was also studying at Guildhall and he'd introduced himself to me by walking in the room one day with his electric guitar, plugging in, because there was an amp there, and saying, listen to this, and right. just playing playing this thing, which just was like, wow, because he'd heard me playing drums, and he said, play along. And, and uh, so when we sort of started you know, jamming together, it was me, Dominic, Phil, and Mark. And I think this, the next rehearsal we had... I think uh, Boone came along with his guitar. Mm. So, uh, and then I think shortly after that, Dominic didn't show up. And so um, I don't remember why, but uh, I think something to do with it was about the fact that there were too many guitarists in in the room, <laughs> perhaps. But um, um, we'd sort of got, you know, some bits of, you know, uh, really instrumental riffs together and... Uh, um, I booked our first gig in the student union bar and uh, we arrived to do the sound check, um, calling ourselves 88 because we hadn't decided on a name. And um, 
the day of the last rehearsal, Mark had suggested that we call ourselves 88 because he'd come in on an 88 bus and thought, <laughs> thought it was a good thing because we, we all argued about a name because we didn't want anything that sounded pretentious and we didn't want anything that would pin us down uh, and we couldn't agree on anything. Um, but we had this gig coming up, so we had to be called something. So 88 it was. And so we're in the, in the sound check in the student union bar, which wasn't within the college. The student union bar was in a separate uh, refectory where we used to go for lunch. And it was right in the middle of the Barbican Flats. And someone came in with the baby halfway through our sound check saying, you know, bit of a racket. You're not going to, you know, be doing that at night, are you, sort of thing. And no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> So cut to the gig, we get to about a third number and the, the student union um, leader comes hissing up to me saying, the police are upstairs, they've been called by the residents, you're going to have to turn right down, otherwise they're going to, you know, they're going to shut you down. Wow. So I think we maybe played one more number and then that was it, we were told that was it. <laughs> so so it, was first... a, it, it was a bit of a stop-start beginning. It was, I mean, you know, you can imagine this incredible pent-up energy and, you know, Phil was was not holding back. Mark never holds back. And so uh, it was it was really exciting, but there were only about four tunes that were actually got played. Right. Um, so that was our inauspicious start. Uh, I just being... wanted to ask you, before I forget, that do you think the fact that you were all kind of drummers to begin with sort of helped form that kind of very rhythmic kind of jazz funk style that 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 level became i mean you, you said that all three of you were you know drummers and percussionists and do, do you think that had something to do with how rhythmic you were as a band uh definitely uh it, you know it definitely helped and um you know apart from the 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 fact that we we're all into the same similar kinds of music. I mean, we had differences between ourselves individually, but where we connected definitely was, was stuff like, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra and John McLaughlin and Return to Forever and Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock and Weather mm. Report and, uh, and also Stevie Wonder and James Brown and, and Mark was a huge Cream fan. Um, so there was that, that kind of, you know, rock edge in it as well. But the the rhythmic thing was definitely a, a, a huge, I think, benefit. We could lock into each other, mm. you know, pretty easily. And, uh, you know, that was uh, always an important part was the, the timing and, and, the, and the groove and, mm. you know, it being, you know, as great because we were, you know, influenced and inspired by a, a lot of these fantastic artists who were, who were just like masters. And uh, so, you know like children you know you hear something you want to emulate it um as exactly as you can and uh you know if it's if it sounds like that then that's how it should be so absolutely but you're obviously all super proficient because you know even at that even at that age you'd you know you'd been trained hadn't you You know you'd done your four years and then you'd gone on to guild hall so it wasn't you weren't kids just jamming. You 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 all were proper musicians, so to speak. Well, yeah. Although from different um, schools of training. So I mean, Mark and Boo never went to music college. Mm. Um, I I went went to music school and music college, and Phil had had some experience of music college. So there was definitely that. But um, you know, they'd had more experience because on the Isle of Wight before um, we met up. You know, Phil and Mark knew each other as drummers and. 
and Phil and Mark Boone had sort of put a band together to play for a Save the Whale concert and uh, where I think Boone was on bass and uh, Mark was on guitar or something like that. And But yeah, I, I suppose we... We, we, you know, we, we certainly had, we had ideas and we had some musical proficiency. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was quite rough and raw, but, uh, it was, it was, I remember coming home and talking to my mum, being very excited after our first kind of rehearsal saying, you know, this is amazing. This is just like, we've got this amazing band. And she was trying to sort of calm down, dear, you know, don't get too excited, yeah. you know, it, it, I can't remember what she said, but sort of like, you know, just just carry on with your studies and, you know, sure. don't don't take it too <laughs> seriously and so on. But I mean, but, I knew I knew we had something, but whether anyone else would get it was another matter. So it wasn't until we kind of released our first record and started getting feedback that we kind of thought, oh, yeah, there is some other people do like us, uh, you know, mm. do like what we're doing. And when did you start to sort of really, really see the benefits of that? How long had you been sort of jamming together before you released that first record and started to get some notoriety? Yeah, it all happened pretty quickly. I mean, I think we met in a, a, the last part of 79. Um, and yeah, one of the things that happened is that Phil had uh, been invited to play drums on the first M album. M was a group run by Robin Scott uh, that had this huge hit single, Pop Music, in Mm. 79. And I think Phil actually appeared on top of the Pops, although he didn't actually play on that record. He played on the remainder of the album, which was recorded in uh, Mountain Studios near Montreux in Switzerland. And so uh, with that experience, um, when it came to Robin doing his second album, uh, Mark also was involved. And this is just just as we're about to start recording our first album and how that happened um that we got a record deal because that's the first thing that happened we hadn't even done any gigs we hadn't made a demo tape <laughs> we we uh we we were you know fortunate because Phil and Boone's older brother uh John was working in promotions for EMI at the time and Phil or Boone had told him oh, we got this group together uh you know, what can we do? You know, can you want to have a listen? Can we do something? And so um, through uh, the generosity of Robin Scott, who paid for it, uh, we booked a rehearsal studio in North London for three days, two days to practice up stuff. And this is the third day for a, a guy with an uh, independent label who John, Phil's older brother, knew, um, came along to this rehearsal with his tape recorder. And he had his ear to the ground. He had a record shop as well as a record label in North London. He did some DJing uh, along with another guy. He had a kind of jazz funk group and he was looking for someone, something to sort of uh, fill uh, or or supply the market that was this jazz funk movement, which was kind of bubbling underground in the late 70s, early 80s, which was basically kids going to clubs, wanting to dance to kind of quite sophisticated uh, sort of, you know, jazz funk music which had a groove which was danceable but also you know was sometimes instrumental and uh they dress up a bit and you know it infamously got into the sort of cliche of the the slacks and the you know and the, and the nice tops and uh and the cortinas and the fairy dice and all of that sort of thing you know coming from the home counties but there was there was a there was a big thing 
And Andy listened to all of our jammings because that's all they were, <laughs> uh, no songs. And there was this one particular jam that he really liked. And he said, if you can turn that into a song, I'll sign you uh, to my little label to make a couple of singles and an album. So uh, Mark and Boone duly went off because uh, it was Mark's music sequence that, that Andy liked. And together with Boone came up with the melody and Boone wrote the words. And that became our first single, Love Meeting Love. And uh, we recorded that um, at uh, Gateway Studios in Streatham in March 1980. And it got released on Andy's elite record label in May 1980. It got picked up by the jazz funk DJs, people like Robbie Vincent at the time and Chris Hill uh, in the clubs. Got a, got a lot of play, a lot of attention, got to 61 in the charts. Got Polydor interested in then doing a distribution on the single. So they kind of reprinted it on their label. Mm -hmm. and um, And then we went into the studio. I left college in July 1980. We went to the studio in August. We recorded what later came out as the Early Tapes album, which is our first recording album. It wasn't actually finished because we ran out of time and ran out of budget or something. And uh, and then Polydor, at the beginning of 81, said, right, we think there's potential in this jazz funk thing. We're going to sign a couple of groups. They signed Shack Attack and they signed us. <laughs> and they put us together with a different producer because they weren't keen on the sort of Early Tapes material. And uh, so... Then we went into the studio in March 81 and recorded Love Games, which was the first single that got top 40, which got our first Top of the Pops, recorded the rest of the album that summer and then started to get, you know, a few gigs in clubs. Um, so that's, you know, that's really our story of how we got going. It's it's quite unusual um, mm. compared to the sort of, I guess, the, the you know, the norm and... You know, the people, the slogging it out in a van type yeah, way. Exactly. So, so you, you leave college and you're thinking, this is this is easy. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't even thinking this is easy. I was just kind of thinking what, what was going with the flow. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I didn't really know about how much of a slog there should be or could be or you know ought to be. It was just here was the opportunity. I mean, I knew we had some talent, so I knew that in some ways that we deserved a break, but I didn't know that we'd have any success with it. Like I say, it wasn't until Love Meeting Love was getting played, you know, got put on power play on Luxembourg. Wow. John had a connection with one of the DJs there. And uh, it was, uh, who was it? Uh, was it Roscoe? Was it either Roscoe or Stuart Henry? Anyway, one of those DJs put it on power. It's on power play for a week, which means, for those who don't know, Radio Luxembourg was this station that came from somewhere out in the channel and uh, it came on uh, medium wave only so it was sort of phase in and out and I remember mm. listening to it growing up and could they used to play great music and when our record came on and I heard it on on Radio Luxembourg for the first time it's like that is a surreal feeling to hear your music being played on a radio station that you know all the great stuff that you've grown up over the years has been played on um I can so, see the joy in your face even now. We're, we're obviously doing this on Skype. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I can see how, how, how nice a memory that is for you. <laughs> it was. It, it was it was like, you know, pinching yourself mm. moment, big time. So, yeah, so then, then you know, we, we, we went in with this producer, Mike Vernon. We recorded the Level 42 album in, as I said, in the summer of 81. And then 
uh, we got our big break, which was uh, that the police and Mo uh, their manager, Miles Copeland, had approached us or approached John, who then became our manager, basically, yeah. Phil and Boone's older brother, um, to do, you know, eight shows in Germany, uh, opening for the police. Wow. Uh, and so, of course, it was fantastic. And uh, so we had us, then we got our splitter van. We had our yeah. splitter van. Um, <laughs> A brand new Mercedes van, got it split up, put all the gear in the back, and drove down to Stuttgart for the first show. Uh, and the first show was a disaster. Or, in what way? In what way? Musically? Well, or? <laughs> it, well, there was nothing on the posters or the tickets to say that the police had a support group. Right. So. And we got there late because, you know, first experience of driving in Europe and you know, having to drive, get the ferry to Calais, then drive through, you know, France and get to the border with Germany and then drive down to Stuttgart and find the way and not get lost. And this is, of course, before sat-nav and all of that. Sure. Um, so we got there literally with about 10 minutes to assemble our gear, stick it on the stage, you know, do a quick line check and then go off. And then the doors were open. And so the lights went down, um, you know, half an hour later, and 8,000 screaming Germans expecting Stuart expecting, expecting the police to come on stage. <laughs> and then the lights went up, and it wasn't the police. It was this funny group wearing all these spangly clothes, playing this sort of, you know, tinky-tonky jazz funk music or, you know. I mean, and uh, so... Half of them started booing, probably not half of them, but it felt like half of them started <laughs> booing. Um, they started throwing stuff on the stage. There were coins uh, arriving on the stage, which, you know, is not nice. No. Uh, somebody had a firecracker and it landed in the crook of Mark's arm as he was playing the bass. You yeah. know, it, and uh, we did our sort of 35 or half an hour set. Um, we came off feeling terrible, feeling we'd acquitted ourselves really badly. You know, obviously... We're not with any great confidence, you know, with half the audience sort of not wanting us to go on. Went backstage, you know, to sort of console ourselves, sort of Sting sort of popped his head in and said, you know, sorry, it didn't go so well for you lads kind of thing. And then they went off stage and, of course, the crowds screamed again and the police went on and, you know, they were at like the, you know, almost, they were ascending to the height of their, their fame. They just released the uh, Ghost in the Machine album, Mm. Um, uh, the 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 single that was out at the time was um, I can't remember actually. It was uh, uh, well, everything, every little thing she does with magic, you know, was was huge. But mm -hmm. of course, the other, the, all the other hits were 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 going down a bomb, and uh, we had a meeting between ourselves and thought, well, we can't do another seven nights of this. It's going to be horrible. Mm. so out of that we made some decisions one was to dump all the spangly clothes and just go on t-shirts and jeans two was to we need to get the audience on our side um so uh, in order to do that we had to learn how to try and reach a room of eight thousand people that have not come to see you and and give them a good show mm. um so that was fantastic training on the job um well, we can, got, can we just touch on that because for any sort of young artists like what what would your advice be for supporting uh, a big band like that? You know, because I'm sure you've got some some advice. 
Yeah, well, um, uh, it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a fine line. You know that the audience... I mean, it's the same with playing festivals, even to this day, although, uh, you know, it's... You know, we do have a reputation now, but, I mean, you know, there are a lot of festival gigs where which were like that, where people have not come to see you, they maybe come to see their favourite group that's not you, then maybe would say they're not into the sort of music that you play. So you have to acquit yourself. So I think the trick is, obviously, to to try and rise to that. I mean, in a bit like um, someone's thrown down the gauntlet saying, all right, let's see how good you are. So you have to go out and prove it, and you have to have that kind of confidence to do so. At the same time, you don't want to be arrogant and think, well, we're fantastic, and if you don't get it, fuck you. Because, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that could go the wrong way. So, you know, you are there you know, to do a gig and, you know, ostensibly to to entertain people and introduce them to music that hopefully uh, they might like, that that you think is great, um, but they may not. So, um, uh, but there's no point in being shy and um, which, you know, in the early days, especially when we were singing, we were so nervous about singing um, because we basically learnt on the job. And, uh, you know, we'd look anywhere except in the audience's eyes when we were singing and quickly push Mark to the front of the stage and get him to do a bass solo because that seemed to go down well. <laughs> um, but, you know, eventually, you know, it, you do have to try and connect with people right at the back. And uh, it's not a question of necessarily singing louder or making larger gestures, although that can be part of it. It's it's just uh, uh, trusting that that what you're doing, you know, will we'll land somewhere in the audience, maybe connecting with someone that you see is kind of enjoying it um, and, and and not showing how afraid you are. Absolutely. <laughs> inside. <laughs> so a bit, certainly some, some bravado um, and using that adrenaline to sort of just really put it into the music and performance and just sort of imagine just pushing it out there and, and not trying to, sort of keep it there and and, play, and not play any mistakes and hope you like me. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's very similar to I always talk about when I did uh, Gata Zamarung and uh I I'm not sure how much you remember about that project but it was this really heavy metal kind of film project that I was doing. And um just walking out on stage and some, sometimes we'd be playing metal festivals and people would just immediately get it and they'd be, you know, the devil horns would come out and there'd be a circle pit and it would be great. But then doing that kind of gig at Isle of Wight festivals, very different. And um, I totally get what you're saying. You just have to, you just have to be you, don't you? And do your thing and perform your heart out. And uh, yeah, not, not show everybody how terrified you are, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I think... Um if you if you believe in yourself even if you're nervous you know it comes across you know authenticity is, is definitely translates um it's i think you know i think we've both been in situations where you've been in an audience watching someone and uh you know you can tell if someone means it or believe in themselves you know even if they're nervous even if they stumble over their words um you know if 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 the music is inside them you can tell you know or, or at, on the other hand, if someone is kind of like, a, you know, just not really there for the music, they just want want to be loved. And, and if the audience isn't loving them, then they're sort of the, the odd comment comes out or something The you pick up on that immediately as an audience. So uh, you, know, you, you have to be you have to be authentic. And um, 
and you have to be and you have to be brave and um and and also if you can enjoy yourselves i mean it's definitely worth you know if it's not going down well then you look at the other guys in the band and you have a great time anyway and uh that will sometimes you know save the day totally You mentioned your your bandmates there. What what was off stage like back in those days? Was it was it decadent? Obviously, there was a lot of temptation, especially when you, especially when you got you know to the height of your your fame. There must have been temptations around, but you don't strike me as a band that were necessarily getting up to nonsense like Led Zeppelin or Motley Crue or anyone. <laughs> well, I guess we did our own mild version. I mean, the first place that we were really huge, and it was almost like overnight. Um, was because after those uh, the rest of the German dates with the police which went loads better from the second night we got someone in the crew I was going to say uh, a German guy to, to make an announcement before we came on saying the police had some friends that were going to play for uh, not too long and uh, <laughs> so uh, sorry <laughs> yeah so the audience were prepared they knew that there was going to be a support band and uh, and and you know we really sort of tried to sort of throw it out there and Mark came up with this are you okay phrase which he still you know uses and uh, you know it, and it really worked and a load of journalists who'd come to see the police wanted to interview us after our second gig because they they were really interested by the band so and on the way back from Germany we did this one show at the Paradiso in Amsterdam which had been organised by two GJs who were big fans of our first single you know proper single love games um, and as a result of that gig and their plugging us, uh, we went, our first album, Level 42, went gold in Holland. It went top five. We got invited back. We did loads of gigs. We became really famous in Holland before anywhere else. And mm. still to this day, you know, we, we play loads of gigs when we, when we tour in Holland. But, you know, Holland being Holland, you know, guys would occasionally <laughs> saunter backstage and say, hey, guys, do you want some of this? Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, so there was a bit of this, some of this going on. Although I remember that uh, one of the f- early gigs we did and, uh, you know, looking at a couple of the guys in the band and, and seeing that they were there but not there in their eyes mm. and going backstage and saying, oh, you know, if you're going to do that, I don't really want to play because it's, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Especially for a band like you guys because, you know, like we like we were talking about earlier, it... It, it, you're a very musical band. It's not like you're the Libertines and you can go out there and just, you know, just play your jangly guitar and and sort of mumble your way through the tunes. You know, you like you said, you've got to have a certain cohesiveness to be able to play what you what you guys play. It, right? it's, it's a high concentration gig. It always is, and yeah. uh, you know, and and I found, I mean, I found even when I was at Guildhall playing in the dodgy cover band in the student union bar that even half a cider and and I'd lose slight coordination on my drumming. So right. I, I discovered at an early age that, that any kind of uh, alcohol, and I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was interested in the idea of, of maybe a bit of, you know, drugs or, you know, marijuana or spliff, but I didn't smoke. So that wasn't comfortable either. Um, mm. But I, but more to the point, I found that I just got high with the experience. 
and, uh, yeah. and 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 so I didn't need anything else, and and it didn't work for me to take anything. So, so that was never a temptation for me. I mean, it was mm. for others at times, but it wasn't for me. But it never got to, you know, you're not talking um, Fleetwood Mac or anything, <laughs> anything near that sort of level of of, of you know dependency or or, or you know, um, yeah, over the topness. Yeah. I want, I want to, I, I guess the rest is kind of history with Levin. I don't, I don't want to make this all about Level 42 because I want to speak about you and your career since and, and obviously you're still, still playing Level to this day. But just want to touch upon um, in, in 1988, I believe, when you, you just recorded Staring at the Sun, you did this European tour and it culminated in six sellout shows at Wembley Arena. I mean, I, I've done... I've sung one song once at Wembley Arena for an event and it was like the, one of the highlights of my whole career. So, I mean, was that the biggest run of shows you've, you've done? And, and, and uh, I mean, what was that like? I mean, you, well, you, must have, you must have thought I've made it when you're doing six nights at Wembley Arena. Well, <laughs> uh, yes. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a... We, we did a couple of runs. We did, I think we did three runs. We, uh, after our first... Uh, US support tour with Steve Winwood in 86 we came back and we did I think two nights uh, maybe four nights at Wembley maybe maybe one night I can't remember but we did that and then we did another run of six as you say we did a run of eight at some stage wow um, yeah I mean Wembley is fantastic I mean yes I mean it. the thing is it's 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 almost more fantastic to look back and uh, in you know there's a there's a you know quite a well known live at Wembley video that we filmed in '87, yes. um, you know which is kind of the band in its first iteration probably at at the height of its powers and success and so on, um, and I, I look back at that and I think you know wow you know twelve thousand people in that arena all wanting to be there for you it's 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 an unbelievable feeling um however you know in terms of doing the show it was a lot of work because uh we were there were no in-ears then um we were working with wedges and actually it was quite hard work to hear yourself properly because the audience were really loud which was great on one level but on the other hand it was it was sometimes hard to hear yourself and Mark would do this thing which I used to hate him for, which he'd get the audience to whistle at some point. <laughs> That's horrible. And so, and so they'd, they'd be putting their fingers in their mouths and they'd be whistling this. And, you know, and I'd go deaf. My ears would be ringing. And then, you know, it took all the top off. I couldn't hear sort of my voice clearly for the next three or four numbers. And, uh, and we were very busy. We were doing a lot of promo and there was a lot of, you know, our careers riding on where the single's going to chart midweek in which territory and, you know, whizzing off to do, you know, interviews with people that had never heard of you and hadn't done any research. And I'm not trying to say that it was a terrible life. It wasn't. It was great. But often we, we didn't appreciate how good it was. And we come off stage and we'd be more often than not, you know, kind of talking about uh, how t- shit the sound was on stage. And, and, right. you, know, and I, you know, I made a couple of, you know errors where i hit the wrong button or the the sequencer froze or something like that and of course everyone was looking around and that was like a huge disaster 
Yeah, um, it yeah. Ha- it happened in one of the Prince's Trust concerts um, in front of Charles and Diana, you know, our biggest single, Lessons in Love, and the, the wrong disc had been loaded into the emulator because I hadn't labelled <laughs> it the correctly. Days. And, uh, you know, so we had to play Lessons in Love without the sequencer, which, of course, sounded terrible to us. Mm. And, uh, you know, half-arsed and, you know, I was getting glared at. And, you know, so it was... Uh, that was that was a sort of maybe that was a kind of defense against you know being overwhelmed by just how kind of huge it was but it was it was it was really huge and i mean we did another later on we did a run of 15 nights at hammersmith odeon in 1990 mm. which was uh you know another amazing run with alan holdsworth on guitar at that time who is this incredible was this incredible you know he he died recently rest his soul but uh, amazing amazing musician so uh yeah i mean the thing is it's i think when we were at the height or different heights you know there was some uh realization but not a complete realization and we didn't enjoy it anything like as much as we could have done yeah i don't think we took it for granted because we knew the reason we were having success was i mean to a certain extent was a large extent was the songwriting but it was also the fact that we had a record company that was behind us because we were selling lots of records and they were making lots of money so they were booking private jets for us to do this and um you know it was great but uh i kind of wish that i'd been a bit more self-aware at the time and nowadays when we're on stage uh you know we actually i think we probably enjoy ourselves uh much more than we did when it was all kind of like you know, all going off in the in in, in the world fame stakes. Sure, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess it gives you a fresh perspective, doesn't it? Looking back on those days and and still being lucky enough to do to you know to go out and tour now, you know, because you've you've still got a great dedicated following, haven't you? We have, and uh, you know, uh, up until um, you know the, the the pandemic, you know, this year is our fortieth anniversary year, and. Uh, We've been doing more and more, you know, we did almost 20 festivals last summer in 2019. And, you know, uh, we were set to do a whole bunch of gigs. And, and in fact, the stock of the band as a live unit has been rising and rising. And, you know, we played Canada for the first time in years last year. We played in Russia for the first time ever. We were due to go to Australia and New Zealand for the first time ever this year. Mm. Um, so it seems as though, uh, certainly as a live band, uh, uh we've never been more popular or known you know we did our first gigs in south america a couple of years ago in chile and argentina and the reception there was so much love coming off the stage and we stepped on it you know it was like people were crying saying have you waited 30 years to come and play for us you know we've been wanting you it was it was just extraordinary and uh, uh but i think now we have you know we've got more appreciation for that certainly myself and mark have than than you know, for what, when it was the early days. But, you know, we were younger and, and it, again, it was all, you know, a lot to do with, you know, our career was riding on it and, you know, we were, I don't know, um, I, you know, it's just experience. We just didn't have the experience and the the insight uh, that maybe we have nowadays in, in terms of appreciating really, you know, what we'd accomplished. Sure. And I, I, just, I just want to touch upon as well... Um, your solo record changes i was listening to it last night and 
there's a brilliant song on there called West Coast Man, which I love, by the way. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that, um, what what made you do a solo record at the time, and and was it material that you'd already written that wasn't right for level, or did you completely write it for that record? And also, you worked with some amazing people on that. Obviously, Dominic Miller, who you, you still work with, and and you had Pino on bass, right? Pino Palladino. Yeah. And, um, Manu Cache on drums. Wow, what what a great team! Yeah, can you just tell me about the process of making that record? Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we just finished that staring at the sun tour, and you know, including those six nights at Wembley, and um, we'd gone off uh, to Japan to do some dates, and we were supposed to go to the Far East, other places, and I think Australia. And for whatever reason, it, it didn't work out that we were going to be able to get there. So we cut the tour shorter than it would have been. I mean, it was still a long tour, but it was a shorter tour. And uh, there was then a space of months with sort of nothing in the diary because what would come next would be the next album followed by the next tour because it was kind of like album tour, album tour, album tour. Hmm. And uh, so there was they're stretched ahead a a series of months which wouldn't have anything you know filling them in terms of uh, engagements either recording or live and so I saw this as an opportunity to finally if you like do a solo album that I've been thinking about doing and it was a mixture of some of the songs that I'd written over the years that I'd presented to the band that they turned down for whatever Mm. reason that I thought well I'll do it myself then at some point Mm. and so I got in my you know home studio uh, you know towards the summer of 89 and started compiling and re-looking at those old ideas and also com- comparing uh, you know composing new ideas as well um and sort of making demos and uh Polydor the record company you know uh, said they were happy to support me and so they gave me a recording budget And I went and picked a producer, a guy called Callum Malcolm, who, um, you know, again, it's the Scottish connection. I um, and also a hi-fi connection. So I had a Lynn Sunday record deck Mm -hmm. and I really, um, you know, I I really loved my hi-fi. And uh, uh, I'd been up to Scotland and uh, I got hold of the Lynn magazine. And there was this interview with Callum Malcolm, this producer engineer who'd worked with uh, Runrig and the Blue, done the Blue Nile albums. And uh, uh, he'd, I think he'd also worked with Simple Minds and um, a lot of jazz artists as well and worked for the Lynn record label. And he talked about his philosophy about getting, you know, the best sound naturally that he could in the studio so that you have less work to do, if you like, when it comes to sort of mixing it and compiling it. And I fancied that as a, as a philosophy and... The fact makes a lot of sense doesn't it (laughs) yeah and he had a studio in in scotland called castle sound um south of edinburgh and uh where he'd done a lot of these famous things and so i i approached him and played him my demos and said you know would you fancy sort of helping me do this album and he said he'd love to so we did uh half half the recording at metropolis down in london yeah and um you know i invited dominic and you know, um, I don't know if it's through Dominic, but probably because he'd been he'd formed a sort of group with Pino and Manu. So, um, uh, you know, 
And I knew about Pino anyway, and I thought, well, you know, I, w- I want to do something different. I, I don't want Mark on to do the bass. It'd be nice to sort of work with another bass player and, and work with different musicians. Sure. So, uh, and, and, you know, luckily, uh, Pino said yes, and Manu said yes, and, you know, I had the budget to be able to sort of support that and to pay for, you know, you know great studios. So we did half of it in London, and then we went up to Castle Sound and, and did the rest of the recording and, and most of the overdubs um up there and uh, mixed it up there and it was you know it was a real fulfillment for me of uh, a lot of ideas that had been you know that that just wouldn't go away and I thought had validity certainly in terms of my solo voice and it was a, a chance for me to to sing because most people talk about level 42 they say oh yeah you're the one that sings the high bits yeah. and uh <laughs> Uh, and uh, you know a bit like uh well actually i do more than that um especially yeah, you sang solo on quite a lot of the stuff yeah, yeah. but but that's the sort of the, the the sort of cliche might lend up you know he plays keyboards and sings falsetto so yeah. it was it was a chance to sort of say well you know this is a, this is also what i do and what i can do and um, there's actually a lot of um if i remember correctly the first track there's it's like a big acapella vocal arrangement isn't it and that so you you obviously did yeah you obviously were focused on wanting to wanting to sing more and it sounds amazing you know i can all, all the harmonies and arrangements on that on that record it's i really encourage people to go out and listen to it it's it's all on youtube i managed to find it so <laughs> yes thank you well uh, that's really great i mean it's it's amazing it's on youtube because it, uh, i think it's been deleted for quite a few years from from polydor now universal but um I'm looking into licensing it back because I'm uh, about halfway through or three quarters, two thirds of the way through recording um, what I'm calling Changes 2, um, which is a, a, another full solo song album. And it feels like the successor to me to Changes, but coming from where I am now. Um, but in the light of that, my, my publishers approached Universal. We were looking to sort of maybe once... I finished this new album that I, I can also use it to sort of get changes out again because quite sure. a few people have, have said, you know, I can't get hold of it anywhere, um, you know. And uh, so, yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing it. So I just want to touch upon now, Mike, if if I may, that obviously this podcast is called Staying Alive, as I mentioned before. Yes. In, in <laughs> the In the... I guess people from the outside looking in, they think Mike Lindup's in level 42. He must be a millionaire. Yes. And there's obviously been highs and lows of of your career. And what have you done to maintain your career? Obviously, I mean, we met met on Thriller Live, of course, which is a West End and touring production. We we were on tour together for 10 months. And so you've obviously branched out and worked with other things and other projects and was that a necessity or is it something that you wanted to do? And how have, how have you managed to to stay afloat all these years um, when Level might not have been touring? Well, I've always been interested uh, um, because of the background of my parents and, you know, my musical upbringing and also this kind of music I like. I, I've always liked a variety of different music. So uh, it was um, particularly when... Uh, Level 42, we kind of had a break uh, in after 1994. Um, things weren't 
going particularly well for us in terms of our relationship with the record company and um it was all getting a bit serious and we thought you know what maybe we'll just have a a bit of a sabbatical um you know we've done 15 years of albums and tours and we can you know maybe just sit back and and find out what else there is to life and do other projects and so at that time I sort of I joined the London School of Samba. I was playing Brazilian percussion in the carnival for a couple of years. Uh, I joined a Uruguayan group that was run by a Uruguayan friend of mine that lives here in the UK um, to do some shows and did a couple of WOMAD festivals with them. I joined a Brazilian R&B group called Delata, um, touring their first album, which I wasn't on, but uh, I, I was on a subsequent album, but playing that material again, which was a dream because I love Brazilian music from since I heard Stan Getz and Desafinado when I was about three. Mm. And so to sing backing vocals in Portuguese and to play Afro-Brazilian music with all of that percussion um, influence and, and those harmonies was, was, a, was a joy. So, uh, And really since then, Level 42, when, when I rejoined in, in 2006, Mark had already sort of restarted it, rebooted it in 99 and... You know, with without me, I wasn't really keen to join at that stage, and so there was another keyboard player and singer called Lyndon Connor who was, if you like, filling in my role, um, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which which was kind of you know strange, but uh, on the other hand, it meant that the the band was able to sort of go out and kind of sound like uh, level forty two. Um in a was lot that, of ways. Were you were you just fed up of touring at that time? Is that what it was? Was it other reasons or No, no. I suppose it was more like I was just finding myself and um and, and enjoying doing other things and I didn't feel that I wanted to uh you know just I just got married as well. I didn't feel like I wanted to to stop everything and go if you like go back to um, doing you know the old hits mm. um, and uh, you know without there really being anything new or fresh about it and uh, so it, it sort of didn't attract me at that time um, it's kind of like I'm enjoying this time out I want it to continue sure. so uh, you know I came to arrange with Mark where he you know he, he, he you know he, he he got to use the name um, you know without me and I was happy for him to do that and so, and it wasn't really until the 25th anniversary in 2005 where Mark invited me to just come and guest and play the last part of the show at the forum um, where they were playing. And, uh, you know, he kind of announced me on as a surprise guest to the audience and the audience really kind of, you know, went wild. And uh, I really enjoyed playing with Mark again. It was, and it was like, you know, we played last week. It was like, you know, no time had passed and we click, <laughs> clicked immediately. The chemistry was there. And shortly afterwards, Mark said, you know, I'm recording a new album. Do you want to be a part of it? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And so that was the Retroglide album, which came out in 2006. And then Mark said, you know, do you want to come on tour? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, so since then, we've sort of been back together mm. uh, on stage. And, and it was great coming back in that context of, not just playing the old stuff, but playing some new stuff uh, at the same time. And, uh, and of course, having not played, you know, with Mark you know, pretty much for about uh, 12 years, it was, uh, 
you know there was kind of like a a new appreciation of of what it was that we had together and uh and and Absolutely. so that that continues and goes from strength to strength which is great yeah well we uh, we all appreciate it <laughs> um but you you asked me something and i've kind of wandered back to level 42 but i think was, <laughs> that's okay i was asking about sort of you know the, the the i guess the bad times you know how you've how you've managed to stay afloat um during those periods where level 42 weren't touring and because i really want this i want this to be uh you know stories for people who were trying to make it and trying to trying to um forge their their careers you know and and um i just wonder yeah. if you if you've got any well 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 my advice is if you if you do manage to make a million pounds um uh you know try and invest some of it which is what i didn't do so Technically, yes, I was a millionaire in 1988 for a, a few months. Um, um, and very rapidly afterwards, I became not a millionaire in, in <laughs> more and more large proportions because uh, I, I disinvested my money in, you know, some nice cars like a Ferrari. I bought a Ferrari, uh, which I bought for a load of money and then sold it in the recession for hardly anything. And, you know, I bought a big house, which unfortunately didn't make any money which is you know highly unusual but just that my timing was really bad so I sold it for the same price that I bought it for two years later it's worth twice as much I mean yeah this is just stuff that happens but yeah no I'm um I'm not in a position where I can if you like sit at home and just let the royalties roll in and um I have to work you know uh, most of my income comes from playing and performing. So that's, of course, gone out the window now with the pandemic. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I say this in the context of, you know, a lot of people uh, are, being, are ill and, and a lot of people are losing loved ones. So I, I don't say it lightly. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be, you know, complaining about the fact that the world owes me a living when, you know, people are dying. Uh but one of the things that, if you like, doing so much touring, as I have done over the years, has helped with is is you have to, you know, adapt to your situation, which may not be optimum, and try and be creative. So from, you know, carrying loads of heavy home recording stuff on tour with me and lugging up to the hotel room every night, um so that I can sort of work on my demos and ideas. Um, of course, it's great nowadays. Uh, I say, sounding like an old person, which I am. I'm <laughs> nowadays, you just need your iPhone um, and, and you can, you know. I mean, my iPhone's a bit like uh, my recording Walkman. You know, I used to carry a Walkman, a recording Walkman around with me because whenever I get an idea, I'd want to capture it. And so I'd record a tape full of ideas over a series of weeks or months. And when the tape finished, I'd then, you know, sit down and review it and listen back. And the ideas that I thought, you know, had some potential that I'd work on and try and, you know, make them into something more substantial. So, I mean, that's still the case today. Uh, I mean, I'm getting new ideas as well as uh, working on existing stuff like the Changes 2 album I'm working on. Um, but also, you know, with the benefit of the internet, I can Skype with my, you know, co-writers. I can work with my co-producers. You know, we did a, a couple of rough mixes via Zoom the other day, which, 
you know it's possible even though if the sound quality isn't great at least you can you you get an idea and then he can send it via dropbox or something and you can listen to it and then feedback um but you know there's new things to be discovered uh um you know the whole kind of youtube and online streaming and and live concerts i mean i watched the together at home stuff um, mm, me too yeah you know which you know some of which i really enjoyed <laughs> yeah uh, um that's very that's, diplomatic of you mike <laughs> yeah well you know um it, it's 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 a hard thing because uh you know we as artists are used to being able to present ourselves in the best light um you know sure. literally and you know when it's your your dining room or your kitchen and and obviously you know some of us some artists have amazing dining rooms or gardens or kitchens or whatever but it's it's not you know it's not optimum and uh, you know you haven't got the best sound and the best you know reverb on your mic and so on but Absolutely. you know you, you're doing it for a good cause so that's kind of like what what carries over uh but i mean the the music is is such a part of the fabric of life um uh that it's being constantly referred to and used by by people all over the world in all kinds of different situations um you know it, it's so universal i mean just a simple thing as Radio 4, because I've got a telly up here, so I'm listening to the radio to get my news, mostly. And, uh, you know, every day on the breakfast show, at two minutes to nine, they feature either a musician or an actor or a poet or, you know, someone who would have been performing mm. and to just do something. And uh, it's been an amazing variety of things. And it was a guy playing harmonica today, really great harmonica wow. just two minute excerpt you know and uh it's like wow i can't i'm sorry i can't remember his name but uh um you know there's been classical musicians playing there have been poets reading but uh yeah the 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 music thing you know there have been obviously people are sending gifts and uh memes and stuff and most of them have got music on them so uh I know there's there's a real demand for it and I'm just trying to figure out my way of being able to to contribute. You know, I don't just want to, you know, play stuff willy nilly, as it were, mm -hmm. because other people are doing so. I want to have some kind of a real um, real purpose in it. Um, I also want to be, you know, working on the stuff that I want to present in its best light. So uh, um, so, I mean there are different options out there and I'm, I'm like everyone else just exploring them whilst being, you know, in, in the kind of, in this lockdown situation, which of course will lift at some point and people will come to gigs again. And I hope that we all have a real new appreciation of being able to stand next to each other and enjoy music or be on stage and see people stand next to each other and enjoy music. Definitely, Mike. And, you know, we've, I've got a real appreciation for, for you today for, for doing this thank you so much i'm not going to keep you too much longer because we've already been chatting for an hour and 10 minutes actually oh great but before before you do go i've asked everyone so far that's come on the podcast to to be involved in this section that i call one night only and it's a it's putting you on the spot and basically i'm asking you to 
to basically pick either a supergroup or a five-a-side football team of your choice. Now, this means that you can either play a gig with these with whoever you like, living or dead, or you could play five-a-side football with anyone, living or dead. Are you into football? Um, not as as hugely as as I know you are. I mean, I, I mean, I do have a a team, uh, Tottenham, but I'm a very kind of passive supporter. I think I've been to one game um, in my lifetime, uh, um, but I have been to. Did you World win? Cup. Um, y- yes, we <laughs> we we did win, fortunately. <laughs> so that was good. Uh, my son was with me, who's an Arsenal supporter. So that was uh, right. It was very important that we won. We weren't playing Arsenal uh, though. Um, See, so you can honestly say you've got a hundred percent win win record as a fan. So, well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about Tottenham's history uh, too yeah. much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I started supporting Spurs um, when I saw them on TV in black and white in late 60s and they were playing Chelsea in some final. And uh, all I knew was that the team that were wearing white were winning. And my gran, my mum's mum, was, was living with us and she said, you know, you should be supporting Chelsea. You know, we're we're in South London. Tottenham are a North London team, and I said I'm supporting these winning guys who are wearing white, and and so that's kind of where it started, and and then you know I started to find out more about the team, and um, you know who was in it and who used to be in it, and uh, you know of course in the in the seventies Tottenham went through a you know a really magic spell, and. Uh, and you know some of the players played for the England World Cup team and all of that. So, and you know your team's your team, and you know even though, like I say, I'm I'm not really knowledgeable about them. I don't follow all of the results, but they're my team, and I'm happy when I've heard they've won, and I'm sad when I've heard they've lost. But sure, uh, that's that's it. And uh, um, but I mean I don't really play. I mean I used to play at school and. In fact, uh, level forty-two. When we were recording the early tapes, where we, you know, Andy was very structured about the the recording sessions. You know, we'd start at whatever it was, um, you know, around eleven o'clock or midday, I think, and then we'd finish at six o'clock on the dot. You know, one of his famous phrases was, "Okay, we've got ten more minutes for this idea." And, <laughs> 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 and at six o'clock, we 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 stop and. Uh, you know, we were recording at Hillside Studios in um, in Hearn Hill, back of Brixton. And, uh, you know, Mark and I were sharing a flat in Tooting. And Phil was living in Ballam with John, his brother. And, you know, Boone was living there sometimes too. So we'd go to sort of Tooting Beck Common and do like a, you know, a, a three-a-side or whatever it was, however <laughs> many of us there were. Um, so I mean I, I I enjoy playing football, but I'm not very good at it. I have had a go at a few five-a-side teams with some of the school dads when Angelo, my son, was at his primary school. Um, I'm never really very very good at it, but you know it's good fun. But if I was to ju- to choose between a a, a football team, uh, you know, an amazing football team and a super group, I'd have to choose the super group because I'd always be the weakest link in the team. Whereas in a super group, <laughs> I stood more of a chance of uh, making an equal contribution. Yeah, so, I, I was going to say just just because you've actually played with two of the Beatles, haven't you? Speaking of super groups, and, yes, uh, I and have. I think Eric Clapton was on stage, and yes, uh, that was that was an amazing concert. So I I just wondered whether you might. Uh, 
opt for the football team just because you've you've basically peaked anyway. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there are still people I'd love to play with. I mean, you know, if I if I was to pick a supergroup, I would probably have I'd have I'd have Miles Davis on trumpet. Wow. I'd have Stevie Wonder on keyboards and vocals. I'd have. Um, Probably John McLaughlin on guitar because he's been such a huge inspiration. Um, I would have, let's see, who would I have on bass? That's hard because me, Mark is obviously such a, a a great bass player and such a big part of of my life. Um, I think I would go for someone unusual though. Uh, you know, I who do I like? I, I probably it's really difficult with bass players, but um, I go for somebody like Dave Holland. Wow! Yeah, uh, because just because of his musicianship, um, not necessarily because of you know he's a virtuoso bass player in that in that sense that he stands out, but just you know you just kind of know that that what he'd do would be the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then let's see, who would I have on backing vocals? Uh, Michael McDonald <laughs> and, um, Chaka Khan, let's say. Wow. That is a now, gig I'd love to see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we play. Um, I, 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 oh, and I'd, I'd have our old tour manager, or one of our old tour managers, I'd have either Roger Searle. Um, or Kevin Hopgood, uh, because they're both incredibly professional, experienced. I mean, Roger Searle, um, he tour managed us in the 80s when it was all big, and he was completely unflappable. And one of the reasons he was so unflappable was because he used to tour manage The Who in their wild days. Right. So you can imagine anyone <laughs> that can come out of that uh, and, and, and deal with that situation, then, you know, s- someone complaining that his PDs are... And not enough is is easy me. <laughs> so, but I'd I'd have either Roger or Kevin um, as as tour and stage manager because they could help manage the egos and and you know any of any of those other things. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to catch up with you, and uh, stay safe in the uh, in the chaos that we're ensued in at the moment. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. You too, Jesse. All right, Mike. Take care. So there we have it. How lucky am I to get to chat with all these brilliant people? I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Mike. It's been such a privilege to get to know and work with him over the last few years. For more information about Mike and his upcoming album, visit MikeLindup.com or just bloody Google Level 42. My guest next week is something a little different. My first non-musician, which is really exciting. You'll probably have seen him on your TV as DC Jake Collier in Unforgotten or in the brand new HBO series, I May Destroy You, alongside Michaela Cole. So make sure you tune in to hear my chat with actor Lewis Reeves. If you're enjoying the pod, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review as it really helps other people to find the pod. Or you can head over to jessysmithuk.com and donate a couple of quid to help me keep bringing you these conversations. This was a Jesse Smith production. 
Music by Neil X, Mark Garfield, and me. Thanks for listening. Take care of each other, and until next week, try and stay alive. <laughs>